You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. As ever, great to get you on Real Vision. It's been a while, actually, since you and I chatted. I think last time was somewhere like May, in the middle of the maelstrom. Um, and as ever, I want to pick your brains, because I think people are really struggling to make sense of this environment. It kind of it looks like everything's a bubble. Nobody knows what's a real trend, what's not a trend. So I'd love to get, first level, just the top top-down view on what you think is going on, what's playing out here. Okay, well, first, it's good to be back. And yes, it's been less than a year, but these days, time is kind of warped. What used to be a year in the market is not what, what it used to be. God, no, nor the economy. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, just paradigms shift so quickly. And I think this is like a good segue because when, you, when I think about bubbles, I don't think about bubble in a specific asset or specific Thing. Bubbles happen in paradigms. So when people just get really piled in on some one particular style or strategy or investment. And I had a tweet, like I have actually pinned tweet about the bubbles I've seen. And I can add maybe one more bubble. In 9798, which was just the beginning of my Wall Street career, that was a diversification bubble, which blew up when LTCM blew up. The kind of quantitative there. Uh, capital ideas based on the book, capital ideas that if we create this diversified portfolio, then we're going to do well. And that blew up in 97, 98. Then there was a tech bubble in 2000. And uh, I will talk about the other kinds of anti-bubbles later, but then there was a mortgage securitization bubble in 2007. And in my opinion, there was only one more bubble since then, a really big bubble. It was in 2017 with a short volatility bubble. The bubble of short wall strategies, and that blew up. And every time the and what I said in my pin tweet, each of those bubbles generally was pricked by the Fed just raising rates. Very simple. And what happens often after a bubble, and you could I call it a cash bubble. Some people call it anti-bubbles form. That is, people pour everything into cash, and actually, cash U.S. dollar cash becomes the bubble. Yeah. And U.S. dollar was a was a, in a huge bubble in the summer of 2002. And that gave birth to my own approach to risk parity. I just said, not buy stocks or bonds, buy everything. Stocks, bonds, commodities. I had a meeting with JP Morgan. In 2003, I was at this high level meeting at JP Morgan and people asked me, what do you wanna do? Own stocks or bonds? I said, both. And they said, uh, isn't that bipolar? I said, no, just buy everything. Cash is trash, right? I mean, it was not that simple, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit making it a little more dramatic, but that's basically how the conversation went. And then, uh, um, then there was a cash bubble. Probably the most acute cash bubble was March 09. 
And this is where I would say, I literally would say that anybody who was on cash in March 09 was violating fiduciary responsibility. Anybody who called a dollar on cash in March 09 was, in, was basically negligent. And uh, in March 2020, that repeated again, the cash bubble where everything goes into dollars. And in one of my investor letters last year, I wrote about, uh, I compared US dollar cash with Beanie Babies. I don't know if I had this talk with you on the previous show or not, but I had this thing. I said, well, let's just replace dollar cash with Beanie Babies and, and change every portfolio manager statement this way. For example, our balance sheet is strong. We're holding a lot of Beanie Babies in reserve. Or like there is no rush to buy assets like gold, uh, real estate or stocks, because we'll just see how things go. And when things stabilize, we'll always be able to exchange your beanie babies for gold. <laughs> so I think this is, this is what led people to completely misconstrue the economy of the last year. They started to think of, they thought of cash as cash and instead they should have thought of cash as beanie babies, something which was costlessly and unlimitedly produced. So when you want to short any stock, be that what's your favorite like overvalued stock, you hate Tesla, you hate GME, or whatever it is that you hate, Bitcoin, gold, whatever asset you call, when the price of this asset denominated in dollars, when you're selling this asset, what are you doing? You are selling stocks and buying dollars. You are not just taking the short position on the asset, you're taking the long position of dollars. And you know what the Fed is doing? In the response, they're saying, oh, we're the monopolistic producer of dollars. You want dollars? Here, here, get some. And you can, so the asset price rally over the last year was a rejection of dollars. It's not that the assets went up so much, it's that people stopped accepting dollars as payment for them. So every rally in every asset could be described uh, whether you think about Bitcoin or gold or silver or real estate or individual stocks. Of course, it's a patchy rally, but basically, this is people saying we no longer accept dollars in exchange for this asset. So it's the denominator problem, really. In the, the denominator problem, yes, it's the denominator problem. And I think people who are focusing on numerator got swamped by the denominator because, of course, different num numerators perform differently, but the denominator was just such a tidal wave. So I think we're still in the aftermath of the burst of the cash bubble of March, March 2020. What we're having right now, we're dissolving the cash bubble, which is basically still, we're still dissolving the overhang of this excess cash into other asset classes. And that's why people get confused because they say like, oh, why is that asset so expensive? Well, this asset is so expensive. And then you could definitely make choices between asset classes and say this asset is too expensive relative to that asset. But to say that some asset is too expensive relative to cash is almost meaningless at this stage. Yeah, it's interesting because I looked at this and what I ended up using as a denominator was the G4 central bank balance sheets. And that actually worked pretty well. I mean, equities did pretty well and they kind of acted, traded within a range. Um, and that I found was a better denominator as opposed to the US dollar per se as the denominator? Well, yeah, dollar supply, it's not about like, but it feel, but it floods into and supply demand curve. If you think about the supply demand curve and different assets have different elasticity of supply demand curve. So if you exchange, if you create demand by adding dollars, it will have different effect 
on different assets. For example, an asset such as uh, some crazy stock that has massive short interest, that would have very inelastic demand curve. You, you put a little bit demand on the stock and tumbles. Bitcoin has limited supply and it would have very also inelastic. Bitcoin has extremely inelastic supply curve. You increase demand, it jumps. Stocks have a little more elastic supply curve because once if you beat them up, they start IPOing. It's it's not an immediate process, but there will be a little bit supply of stocks meeting demand. But in so it's but still it's it's not super elastic, right? So so if you again you're thinking about this, it's not about the value of things; it's about how much cash is coming for them. And so, do you think of so? Would you use the denominator then as M two, for example? Does that give you a better understanding of what's happening to the denominator here? I don't know if there is like uh, I think you should use your favorite measure, but to me, it's not about choosing the right measure and trying to understand what. It's not about trying to pin. I don't think I have a mechanism to say what should stock be worse, stocks, what should stock market be worse. But it, it, to me, that's more like a cautionary exercise that why I did not want to be shot the whole year and why I was leaning towards long all assets. And probably less now, less so now. I'm definitely less long beta now than I was even a few months ago. I think my peak long beta was kind of around September and then I started to wind down my and kind of moderate my long beta outlook because the first few months of bursting the bubble, the cash bubble, that was the biggest move. But I think we are not in a new bubble in essence. We're still in the aftermath of the deflating of the cash bubble. And when you deflate the bubble, things go a bit the other way. Now, why is gold not working in the way that most people expected it to? It did well to start with. And really, if the denominator, you know, if this cash bubbles um, issue is correct, why has gold not gone up as much as almost all the other assets? Because all of them are, you know, bottom left to top right, except gold, which has been correcting over the last six months. Any thoughts on that? Well, I would say that gold works about as much as you expect. Give it, it has slightly more elastic supply than other things because there's a lot of above ground gold. And actually, this might be a good uh, time to jump. If you want to share a slide five, let's go back to like 2000 when gold was very cheap. Uh, that was uh, the time when cash was expensive and there was a gold was cheap as uh, the internet bubble burst in 2000 led to cash bubble in 2000 around 2002 and gold was cheap and gold started to rally. Now let's this is kind of a roll adjusted chart so that might not really look like actual prices of gold so bear with me I look at economic charts not the price charts because I like to adjust everything for the rolls but look on this chart the movement from uh, early year 2000, like early 2000s to around 2004, and you see the move from like 600 to close to 800 on this chart, right? Yeah. And then you see that first move. I feel like that is the that is where we are in the cycle. That move has occurred. Then there was a plateau that lasted really like for several for a year at least. If you see the plateau between like 04 and 05 kind of range. Yeah. Yeah, and then there was a plateau, then there was another sharp move. And then, but do you see how early, how nascent was that gold bull market? So yeah. in my opinion, because the chart is logarithmic, the shape looks not the same way because gold is a logarithmic asset. I feel like we just made our first run and that spike that you see at the very end of the chart is actually not so different if you kind of 
proportionate to the gold corrections that not even to the big color corrections that we see after 2005. It's kind of proportionate to the small corrections that we saw in 0405. So I think much more volatility is ahead. And I think the gold bull market is only beginning from that perspective. And this is, um, I'm kind of conservatively was calling for gold 3000, but I think that there is space for gold to go higher without any kind of crazy hyperinflation, just kind of a normal bull market. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense to me. How do you deal with and we spoke about it last time and I think you were dead right. You were just like, I'm not interested in bonds anymore. Do you remain non-interested in bonds? There's no value to the portfolio really to have them. I think that there are a lot of opportunities in the global bond market. And I am actively trading global bond market. I think opportunities are not greatest opportunities right now not holding US Treasury bonds. In fact, I was leaning my I was in US over the last few months, I was leaning towards relative value trades and curve positions and things like this. But overall, if you just separated my US interest rate position, it would trade short actually for the last few months. And again, inconsistency with consistent with historical pattern that when you uh, burst, if you kind of the first rally burst of the cash bubble, but then what, what happens is with bonds when burst the cash bubble, that there is a bigger rectification of relative value trades. So things that were dislocated are beginning to move in your favor. And that was the way to take advantage was of like municipal swaps or inflation index bonds or asset swaps versus curve positions. All of this stuff was really lucrative over the last few months, much more lucrative from my perspective than trying to bet whether uh, ultras are going to go up or down next day. But I think all of this stuff rectifying was correlated with curve steepening and um, rates going higher, and that was lucrative. I think there are other world opportunities where you can be both short and long sovereign debt. And my favorite long has been Australia, and I've been wrong about this over the last couple of months, and it's been Australian rates have gone much higher. I still think they represent a lot of value. But all I'm saying right now is that I feel like there is lots of opportunities to be right and wrong and play the global bond markets. But I think the one trade is not, it has not been at least for me last few months to be long US Treasury bonds. And what about the dollar, the other big macro variable? How are you reading that right now? I feel based on historical pattern, historical pattern points towards a uh, secular bear market and, and dollar, like a very significant bear market. And again, if you follow the pattern, I'm kind of, I'm really strongly recognizing. And from the very beginning, I was, when the pandemic crisis started, my guidepost was not the GFC, global financial crisis, but post-September 11th crisis, because the idea of, uh, of exogenous shock followed by massive stimulus, there were a lot of similarities, just the scope was much bigger from the pandemic crisis, but a lot of similarities to um, a lot of similarities to uh, kind of both uh, disruption in travel, both uh, kind of post-crisis, a lot of things that we didn't expect money to spend on, uh, shifts and societal shifts. I think all of those things are very similar. And what I what was we saw after 2000, the very prolonged bear market in, in dollars. So my biases towards bear market and dollar, but that bear market and dollar was also very choppy. And there are some currencies you could make money by being short. There are some currencies you could make money by being long. 
to me. However, I would rather play this bear market through hard commodities, is like precious metals and commodities, rather than speculating too hard on like euro or something else. And how are you seeing emerging markets? Usually if the dollar's stable or negative, it tends to be a really good slot finally for emerging markets, which have underperformed for over a decade now. How are you thinking about that? I'm long, probably slightly long emerging markets. I find value in emerging markets. I think, yes, for this reason, it's kind of, you know, one of the other things I said is that this was the year that kind of bulls and bears got slaughtered. So it's a time for hogs. Yeah. So actually, what you should be doing right now is what has kind of become an, an, an anathema in the last volatility. You should be going into carry trades. And this is a very kind of like a, it's a scary mentality, but that's what you were supposed to be doing. And I'm kind of a little afraid to, in, in general, like I always like this discussions are not trade recommendations. I will say like I'm a professional, don't do it at home, right? Yeah. And also sometimes it's too easy to be into a trade when I start um, pitching a trade and say like, hey, I've been doing this trade, but I already moved a lot. And then I don't want to suck people into some of the carry trades, but I think the place to be really for the several last several months was on carry trades. Yeah. And it's a very, it's very scary. And like when just everything got slaughtered, you kind of just got taught your lesson not to do carry trades. And that's exactly the time to do carry trades. So emerging markets, emerging market carry trades are doing well. Just look how much Turkey has done how well Turkey has done from the, you could focus on the fact how much, how poorly Turkey, how badly it blew up a few months ago, but now the Turkey already rallied quite a bit from its lows. And if you are holding it, you are burning so much carry. And the interesting thing is that Turkey historically makes money. If you keep holding Turkish lira, if you look at the chart of its depreciation, it would look horrible, but it actually makes more interest. If you just hold it and earn carry, you actually do well in Turkey. Carry trades, you really need to know what you're doing, though. Yes. You know, because you are taking short volatility risk, which is fine if you understand how to manage that risk. I mean, you've been doing carry trades for years. You know, you yeah. came from that background. It's pretty hard to do for most people, right? Yeah. Well, one rule of thumb I used to navigate carry trades is what, and I wrote about this in my first book. I said, when I enter carry trades, I try to, uh, only do those trades which also have considerable upside mark to market. So what I don't want to be is in a pure carry trade which just earns a few percent interest a year, but once in a while blows up. Like for example, a pure short wall like selling wings type of trade. Or if you structure something in the emerging market which can only make 4% a year and then once in a while loses 50%. Even if you think that uh, your risk reward profile is good in your opinion, it's usually not a good stuff to have in your portfolio because you might say like, oh yeah, but it's not gonna devalue all the way, it's gonna come back, but the amount of capital it will tie up if you have to withstand every single sharp move against you makes the carry that you're earning not worth it. While, so that's why even if I, when I look at emerging markets and I wanna enter some carry trades, I wanna have good entry points that I say like, well, I can carry, but I also can appreciate. And then you can, then what happens that you can gain your results without too much leverage. You don't need to have to. I basically, for me, emerging market trades are always leverage one. I do not trust, 
like for me if i invest in countries like well i might be a little more comfortable with a country like mexico i don't expect 100 percent deval but for example if i chose to invest in turkey or argentina i would just say if i invest a million dollars that's how much i stand to lose i have no idea what they're going to do with my money but but if i stand to lose a million i should be able to make a million not forty thousand a year that's basically the, the idea you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. And how are you thinking through, we talked about it earlier at the beginning, the equity market, because the equity market by, we talk about the cash bubble, I get that. But now we look at any metric that we've ever looked at for equities and they look expensive but it's not clear whether there's a paradigm shift because of low rates or the rise of the SaaS business model and high margin businesses how are you thinking through that can you justify to yourself being long outside of momentum what are you thinking well there is a um, dichotomy there is an honest dichotomy going on and I feel the dichotomy will be very hard to resolve intellectually because there are two camps and both camps have very strong arguments. Camp is uh, expensive by all these historical parameters and every time those indicators show that way and that camp says, yeah, you can talk about low rates, you can talk about new paradigms, money printing and all this stuff, but the reality is that go historically, every time you saw this type of valuations, you, had, you saw poor returns next decade. And that's a completely valid thing to say. And then there is another camp which says, Yes, but uh, we are in a new paradigm. We're at a zero-rate environment, which have never, which hasn't been before in the recent history, and valuations are all changing. And I am a little, I am kind of caught between two par- those two uh, camps, and I am sympathetic to both of them. I think I am a little more leaning towards new paradigm, but with a caveat. What I am thinking about Stokes, what there are a couple of types of bears that I don't understand their position, even though their inputs are correct, but what I get is doesn't work for me in some sense. So first of all, I don't get when people say hyperinflation is coming, sell stocks. That does not make any sense, right? Because denominator problem, right? But I also don't understand people who say deflation. Uh, there is a very, there are some people arguing that there will not be inflation. And I, I heard some really good arguments why, and I think you gave me some of those arguments too several months ago, why inflation scare is really not that founded. Because the, the bulk of consumer expenses, that's rent. And rents are actually not going up. And you could talk, go through pent-up demands on restaurants, but how many, people, how many times people go to restaurants after vaccine? Meanwhile, they bought a lot of durables. You could go through, and I'm kind of, going to be parroting words of some other people here, which is not properly coding, so I apologize for that. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of arguments that are made by people. I mean, I guess I should probably quote David Rosenberg. He's like a good, he has a good argument why uh, we're not in secular inflation. We could have a little bit of a spike here and there, but uh, what I don't get is how someone can have that view and be bearish on stocks. That does not work. 
in deflationary environment, the bear case for stocks does not exist right now. Because the Fed print more money. Yeah, because yeah, they just keep printing more money. Bear. So for me, in my strategic system, you could of course analyze flows and understand uh, when will be redemptions, when there will be flows, and from flow perspective, try to solve it and figure out when to short. I, I guess like our common friend Mike Green is an expert on uh, uh, is is an expert on on this stuff. How to uh, how to understand the flows, but I'm not. I don't look at this kind of stuff at all. I don't understand this. But what I am say like a like a long term bear case for stock just absolutely doesn't exist because think what's going to happen in if inflation is benign, say between one and two percent, keeping Fed dissatisfied. We'll just keep zero rates, keep more printing money. What and eventually in that environment there multiples have no chance, no choice but to keep expanding. There's just no other path for multiples because any company which is a non-losing money concern uh, will keep attracting capital. All the companies, imagine that you're in a negative rate environment with your taxes being cashed and you can give your money to Google and say, hold my money for me and just don't lose it. There is really no limit to how much the multiple on Google can expand as long as Google can manage to hold capital and not lose your money. All they have to do is like minimum positive earnings and they will have positive carry versus uh, risk-free interest rates. So, so, then, so then where is the risk? Because the other thing I look at is I think, okay, maybe there's a, um, an air pocket in growth for three months because of virus concerns, whatever. Even then, outcome is Fed prints more. There's yeah. almost no outcome except one and a half percent GDP growth, no inflation, where the Fed don't print more. It's well, there is an outcome, and but and I'll get to a second. And actually, by the way, I want to point out about your pocket of growth. Another big mistake that I think people made last year, uh, what well, kind of misconception was that? Oh, look at how weak the growth is. Stocks are valued relative to growth. There is actually no particular reason why stocks should even go down in recessions. What was the reason why stocks in the past recessions went down? Because if you think again. Each recession is just kind of clears out some of the particular, the particular losers in each recession. Global financial crisis, some overleveraged banks, right? Or mortgage companies, especially. Uh, uh, say this recent, the travel and leisure industry got really hit, right? In this recession. But other companies, companies which survived through that, why would not they actually, why would your long-term outlook on a company change over a short-term recession? So the reason why stocks go down in recession is because of shortage of liquidity, the cash bubble. You tighten up because at the beginning of recession, cash supply tightens. Nobody has cash, so they're always sellers. There's no buyers. It's that simple. There are sellers and there are no buyers. Stocks go down. Now, but because in this crisis, the liquidity has been, has been sold, there is no particular reason why weak growth would mean weaker stock market. Now, what could be negative for stock market is kind of like almost like the paradoxically the Goldilocks scenario when we lift off from deflation and get a moderate inflation, but moderate enough to make Fed concerned like three four percent inflation and the Fed starts moderately raising rates, and they moderately raise rates and all of a sudden some companies cannot serve that service their debt. Now if there is a runaway hyperinflation and the debt went away. And stocks stocks go away, stocks go up anyway. However, if the in moderate inflation pressure, that's that's going back to my original thing. 
the bubbles that will form after the burst of this cash bubble might be burst by Fed tightening. So uh, will they be, yes, we know that the Fed reaction this time probably will be delayed. They're not in a rush to tighten. So yeah, so therefore it just continues the, the trend that we're in. Yeah, yeah, but at some point, I think the thing is like the Fed, for the Fed to stay easy, they don't have to keep rates at zero when inflation is three and a half percent. They could go to one and a half percent and still have negative two percent real rates. But the nominal rise in rates might already have some, even if they still have negative real rates, the nominal rise might have put some pressure on some situations. I'm just guessing. Here I'm totally guessing. I have no model, no framework. I'm in a total guesswork. I feel like somewhere in the middle of the ground scenario where the Fed says, well, things are actually good here. Stock market is high. We're the economy bounced all the way back. We're a bit overheating. Let's start taking away some of that party. That's where things can, that's where we could have corrections. So why didn't we see the same outcome in Europe, the UK, and Japan when they first went to kind of zero rates? Why were their stock markets cyclical while the US has been secular with the same backdrop? What's the difference? Because it's the dollar? Is that is that the answer? Because it's the root of all money? Possibly. Possibly it's the dollar liquidity that mattered more than their domestic liquidity. Possibly uh, the liquidity measures were not drastic enough. It seems like they were drastic but limited. I don't know. This is a very good question. It's really hard for me to understand the structural, for example, bear market in Japan. It could be just the scope, but it was there was a. If you really think about this, uh, if you look at Japan, what they had, they had incredible stock market bubble, right? Which would make these bubbles like looking like emitters, right? If you think stock, U.S. stock market is in a bubble in J Nikkei circa 80s, like hold my beer, right? Exactly. And uh, then uh, what happened afterwards, so if you think uh, that they went into yen bubble, which really only burst in 2012 with the change of the government. When there was this change in leadership and they started Abenom, Abby came Abenomics, Kuroda-san, all the stars started, they burst the yen bubble. And that's when stock market, they managed to shift stock market direction somewhat. I think it's got to be something to do with the fact that maybe the world's denominator is the US dollar and yeah. that it's the key driver of capital flows somehow. So domestic flows in Europe don't actually matter as much as the marginal dollar-based global flow, something like that. Okay. It's just interesting to me to see that, that different outcome. There is also something really structural about this is a, like it's it's like a for example leads me to question about banks why everybody says that like negative interest rates killed European banks but if you or like zero negative interest rates killed European banks but zero rate didn't kill U.S. banks at all granted we didn't go to negative rates but given how well U.S. banks have performed last decade if the rates were negative half a percent I just don't think J.P. Morgan would have gone bankrupt. So, right. so maybe Richard Koo is right and it's a balance sheet recession that's the difference because maybe they have balance sheet recessions, particularly at the banking system level, and the US doesn't. Um, 
And maybe it's as simple as that. It could be as simple as that, but it could be like a, also an aspect of just complete like cultural and structural difference. Like U.S. banks are just always more profitable and more efficient. They kind of work in a way that, in again, that European banks just don't. And that's why I have a deep faith that, not that I'm advocating for negative rates, but I think if we go to negative rates or if we change anything, what, what happens with U.S. It just seems like whenever things shift, U.S. banks seem to figure out how to navigate it and regain profitability. And they got nailed really badly in global financial crisis, but they bounced much faster than European banks when they got nailed in European debt crisis. And they kind of never really came back. And with them, your stocks never really, I mean, your stocks, uh, FTSE, I mean, like you see all the stock indexes that never really came back from their, to their highs while US is flying. And it's a really amazing phenomenon, despite the fact that Europe has much more favorable interest rates as we talk about, right? It can't yeah. have escaped your attention that the big Asian indices are starting to break out from multi-year consolidations and stuff like that. How are you thinking, at, how are you looking at that? Is it on your radar screen? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think it's definitely something to watch. And I mean, I think stock markets, uh, I'm not really very good at like, no, well, like, I mean, I watch Nikkei a lot, right? And Nikkei, I've kind of been in and out of being long Nikkei. There was, I, actually, I wrote in my investor letter, one of my big, mistake, big mistakes last year was to take profits on Nikkei a little too early because I bought it at the bottom of, like one of my big buys on the bottom of the crisis with Nikkei. And then I got out of it because I wanted to get more flat beta. I just felt like I don't want to write, run a beta positive fund anymore. Like I wanted to be more neutral. So I have some beta positive beta, some negative beta positions. But I also kind of interested in India. I think India is an interesting country stock market wise. And it's like, you don't even have to worry about like, is it a thing you, highs or not is it like a good entry point i think if you think like in a secular way how much can stock market in india make is interesting yeah i'm exact i'm exactly as you know i've been writing about that it's something i'm really focused on i think if there's one of these emerging markets that's super interesting because of what's going on with telecommunications fintech money yeah. everything it, there's a revolution happening and you know i think there's going to be i think it's a step change that can happen there yeah and again, yes, just it, it's almost like it becomes like almost like a, a Pascal's wager. I mean, you, yes, things could go wrong in uh, India, but how much can it go up if you have a country like if you really, if India kind of does make like a gap like in China in terms of domestic consumption, how much can you, how much money can be made there? Yeah, I mean, it's gigantic. I mean, you know, I've been looking at the reliance industries who are building out all the telco and the 5g and the 4g and own all the internet and i mean i'm just looking at that thinking this is easily a trillion dollar company um mm. because they own pretty much a monopoly of all of that you know what was uh, one thing that gives me kind of a pause there has been not an asia story but a somewhat disappointing story similar to india for me has been brazil brazil has disappointed everybody always okay so <laughs> well I think like really the country that always disappoints is Argentina. Yeah, that's true. That's worse. Yeah. So um, let's talk a bit about so so the equity market overall. What you're saying to me really is 
there's nothing really to be scared of at this point. So the probability is for rising prices. Now, the quality may not be as high as it was as an investment a while ago, but it seems pretty okay. In bubble terms, it's not the bubble yet. It, it's bubble terms, it's not the bubble. However, uh, here is one thing that I did before. Like, I, I Actually, I think I did it at one of GMI conferences and I did it at some other conferences. In the years like 2017 and 2018, when the stock market was rising, several times I took a poll. I would, and one time in front of a big audience, and I say, raise your hands if you think you will not be able to buy a uh, stock market considerably cheaper than now and sometime in the next five years. And it turned out that most people thought with overwhelming probability, there will be a moment to buy it cheaper. And of course, it did happen. You actually got two chances. You got a chance in 2018, and there was a better chance in 2020. Now, if you got scared and didn't do it, that's your own problem. But the thing is, like when market, the history just let's put a new paradigm away and think. The history shows that if stock market breaks through new highs and goes to very comfortable at the money highs, it could run for a bit more as it did run for a bit more, for example, if you're thinking about this in 2017, right? Or like even post 2000, even if you ignore the bleep in 2018, it ran quite a bit more to February 2020. But then what happens, there is always something happens. And the thing is like, if there is a 30% correction in stock market, it wipes out so many years of moderate gains that you always can get in on it cheaper. So I feel that we're at the level that the odds are that there will be a chance to buy stock market cheaper. So it's not a place where I would load up. I feel like I would probably stick with my beliefs if I believed in certain investments and not necessarily US. I don't know if US is the place to be because why does it have to be US if there are some other markets that are so much cheaper? Like I don't have anything in US right now. I'm just living on stock market. I have some positions right now in Europe and I'm eyeing some other positions around the world. But I have, um, I have nothing, nothing in the US. So how, because I feel that the risk reward is such that yes, dollars can pressure. If, if my only argument is the abundance of dollars, then there might be assets that can perform even better than stocks. If it's the, only the denominator argument, there are assets with even less uh, elastic supply. So that leads us into Bitcoin. How are you thinking about Bitcoin right now? And that whole space. Well, as you all know, there's been a lot of controversy around that. A few years ago, I wrote a post, which I think was called in quest for digital gold. And I just still think that's like the best. Um, I, can I say this? I think it's the best thing that's ever been written that my post, I think I basically summarized it there. <laughs> because what I and I mean, many people say the same thing. So I'm kind of only being a little tongue in cheek here, but I think I got it right. But, well, if uh, you've got it, I'd love to share it with people if you're happy to share it, because if it's a yeah, great it's publicly, post. It's available publicly. This post is available publicly. It's called In Quest for Digital Gold. You can even like Google it or whatever. Fine. So, and it's on our website. What I did, I basically compared the performance of Bitcoin with precious metals and said that Bitcoin, uh, when there was a burst of Bitcoin in 2014, I said, it does not look like a burst of a bubble. It looks like a correction in a precious metal complex. And in a compressed time frame, that's how it behaves. And what I said is that the story of Bitcoin is story of it accumulating the street cred, accumulating the credibility as a store of value, just as gold accumulated over several thousand years. 
Bitcoin is accumulating over 10 years. And then I said like, uh, and then I said the altcoins are not, uh, shouldn't be compared to Bitcoin, just as copper is not compared to gold. They have utilitarian use of industrial users. And I think where, and what I, so I'm not gonna make right now a bear case or a bull case for Bitcoin, I have no idea because I hear lots of pros and cons and problems and supports. But what I wanted to point out that when I hear in public discourse, I hear a lot of people, what I think are confusing, what is a bug in Bitcoin and what is a feature, just from my perspective. Obviously, some people may disagree. Uh, I think the fact that Bitcoin is not a medium of transaction, that it's not easy to use, use it to wire it or whatever, I don't think it's a bug, I think it's a feature. Because if it wants to be store of value, it should not be, it should not actually be easy to move it. Uh, the fact that Bitcoin is very volatile against dollar, they use it, they think of it as a bug. I think that's a feature because if Bitcoin was tethered to dollar, it would be, a, sorry for the pun, a stable coin it would be tethered, right? The whole, it'll, it can only provide you a hedge by being volatile. It has to be volatile. Every store of value is volatile. Gold is as volatile as Bitcoin, actually, just on a more extended time frame. The scope of fluctuations on precious metals, such as gold, palladium, silver, and platinum, are actually comparable to the scope of swings in Bitcoin. They just happen over longer horizon, time horizon. But how much they correct is actually not so different from how much Bitcoin corrects. So from my perspective, that is those old pitches. What, but then what people present as, present as uh, features, sometimes I see as a bug. Like when people say, all I have to do to send somebody Bitcoin is send an email and that's an irrevocable transaction. Nobody can stop it. I, was like, I think that's a bug because one of the biggest issues is the security. And that's why I think like what is missing with the Bitcoin world is institutional custody. And I think people are so, Focus. I've been so focused on saying I'm not gonna give my bitcoins to gold, JP Morgan, or whatever, because or State Street, they, because they could go belly up. But then they like put them in cold storage and then forget their password. I know the story is abandoned. But the thing is, yes, the big bank can fail. But you know what? I trust big bank to store money better than I trust myself. And I'm sure as hell not keeping just for anybody listening. I don't have any cold storage, USBs, or gold nuggets in my house, don't come to my house, you'll find absolute zilch there. Because I just don't think it's a secure way to store anything. And then all this stuff like, oh yeah, we can, but I can remember like a line of password. Well, if you read some books about human memory, you would be really scared, no matter how good your memory is. You literally, the, the whole thing about institutional custody is if you want to wire money, if I go to my private bank and I say, like, you know, sometimes in movies they do it. Somebody picks up the phone and says, why are 5 million to XYZ? Yeah, right. You know what actually happens? You call the bank and they call you back and they ask you, why do you want to wire $5 million to Honduras? And this will be like a long back and forward process. It will not be until they confirm the validity of the receipt party that until actually someone who knows your voice talks to you on the phone, confronts that that's what you actually really want to do and why you want to do it. That it's just, that actually is a feature, that kind of degree of security, which I think cryptocurrency lacks. And until that, and 
that kind, it also has a flexibility because if something went wrong, I know the bank will fix it. While, for example, if you even have those programmable contracts, they're hardwired, you cannot fix anything about them. So like if you have those Ethereum programmable contracts and something happened and which doesn't actually make economic sense because people just didn't foresee some situation, it's like in court, a judge can overrule the law a little bit when they see that, okay, the situation just doesn't make sense even though the law says it, but look, like this person broke into the house, but they broke it because they're freezing out in the cold and they would die if they didn't. I'm gonna put this person in jail because they try to survive. The judge could make that discretion. So I feel those things could be, uh, need to be resolved. And I think, and finally, I wanna say is that there are things in which people draw daylight between gold and Bitcoin, but I don't see so much daylight. Like for example, the argument that um, oh, electricity goes down. You cannot get, you cannot get your bitcoins. I was like, okay, good luck getting your gold from a bank vault. Yeah. Electricity is down. Yeah. And then there is an argument that people say like, yeah, but if you give like a gold nugget to somebody, the transaction is final. Or gold with bitcoin, you still need all those people to verify. It. I was like, yeah. So I give you a gold nugget, and you trust me that the gold nugget that it's a gold nugget without mass spectrographer that you still need electricity to run. So now the vulnerability of networks and vulnerability to 51% attacks and empty blocks and all this stuff that I think and like concentration of miners, I think that's a real concern which I just not qualified to address. But if, if I wanna say one more final thing about cryptocurrency, I think with a price sheet on Bitcoin, it went from St. Petersburg paradox to Pascal's wager. So to, for those who are not familiar with this terminology, St. Petersburg paradox is the idea that if you have really infinite expectation on one side, no matter how many, how little probability of success, you wanna put a little bit of money on this because your expectation is infinite. So if you bought Bitcoin for 10 cents or $10 or $10,000 as it turned out, you get a multiple upside. And if you think like, yes, they could confiscate it, it could fail, it could be wiped out to zero. But I'm just thinking that I'm trying to score a big profit if it works. That's, but Pascal's wager is a slightly different. That's more of a matter of survival. Same logic, but thinking, hey, I'm a portfolio manager. What if everything develops and Bitcoin will be the only thing left? Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm, I'm just talking as a hypothetical manager. But I need to have something in it so that I'm not, I'm in a game. It's a survival matter, right? If some reason Bitcoin goes to a million, I need to be in the game. And if I don't have 1% of Bitcoin, I won't be in the game. And I think the mentality has gone from the first one to the second one for portfolio managers right now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Now, um, before we, we've got a bunch of questions from the audience, but before we go on to that, I just want to clarify, okay, out of all of this, where does your strong conviction lie? Do you have strong convictions right now? Um, you know, in the kind of, next six to 12 month terms, what, where do your real convictions lie? 
Well, I think in the, in the most simplest understandable project uh, product is probably in precious metal complex, choosing between uh, not necessarily equivalently choosing the precious metals that I like, the miners that I like, but kind of navigating that complex. I think that's the most comfortable thing to say. That's what I want to hold for 10 years. Yeah, perfect. Right. I'm going to read some questions out now from the audience. We've got a whole bunch of them. So here's a question from Yusuf. Any thoughts on yield curve control? So we talked about, you know, if this reflation is a bit bigger than, than expected by the Fed, do the Fed step in and stop the long end rising? What do you think? And what impact does it have? They may and they may not. I don't see, like, first of all, I think they see some amount of stiffening as healthy. And I think if they keep rates low in the front end, it could be enough to just, the carry players will eventually just come in and control the curve. They might not need to do the yield curve control if there is fiscal impulse. If there is enough of the fiscal impulse, I don't see yield curve control is inevitable because, well, guess what? Inflation expectation goes up, rates are supposed to go up. It's a, it's a tricky thing. It's like what I always argue that central banks in, are actually in a better position than people think because of having the balance sheets. Because if they have inflation risks, they can sell assets. Now, what happens when they sell assets? Uh, if they sell bonds, rates will go up. But I'm like, well, yes, no kidding. If there is an inflation scare and Fed fights inflation, rates might go up. I think uh, it's hard to have both unlimited fiscal impulse and unlimited yield curve control. And I, it might be not even necessary because I think certain amount of steepening will be healthy for many sectors. Yeah, it just as long as it doesn't go too far, right? I mean, if the four-year goes, to, if the 10-year goes to 3%, I mean, it's probably an issue, right? Or is it not? Well, just think about uh, if I still have zero policy and 10-year goes to 3%, that happened in 2014, actually. It could happen. But then what happens is that asset managers just eventually start snapping those 10-year notes for the carry. Mm. So it self-regulates, essentially, as soon as the year is good. If it's not, if there is no, if policy is stuck at low rates, I think eventually it will self-regulate. They may, like, they may do something if there is a very precipitous disorderly sell-off in the market, but permanent yield curve control, I think it will go very much against the DNA to do it. They might have to do it, but I think it will, like, it's interesting, like Australia went very quickly with yield curve control, but they're controlling three-year, meanwhile, the 10-year selling off quite handily. Right, gonna go on to the next question. Silver, you still think it's a superior trade at this point and going forwards? Uh, relative to gold, it's a tough one because silver gold ratio corrected a lot, but yeah. it's actually still high relative to long term historicals. And given where we're on the cycle, silver has quite a bit of upside. Yes, I, I still like silver as a long term trade. I think that I just see no reason why silver shouldn't make a all time high on the cycle. And that's yeah. quite a bit of a way to like just if that is a guidance. Why not? Do you play carry trades on a cross-currency basis? And if yes, how do you go about it? So it's kind of this, how do you construct some of these carry trades? If you're talking about cross-currency basis swap, that is just, to me, that is just an input on foreign exchange forward. I usually don't do basis itself. I would just choose the curve. curve and sometimes the carry on certain, like uh, for the so last might, years, the carry on dollars was enhanced by cross-currency basis. If you were along like dollar yen or dollar euro, you were actually making money on cross-currency as well. 
but so you usually take that. the outright risk in the currency. So you'll buy. Two I usually days. take outright risk on the currency, yes. And maybe you take six month forwards and you just run that. Or ten year forward sometimes. Yeah, really? Okay, that far out. Okay, you said so. Michael said you said what burst liquidity bubbles is more liquidity. Is that right? I'm not sure that was quoted. Um, he, he's worried about the impact of the new stimulus and the infrastructure. Do we get excess liquidity and does that create a bubble that bursts? Or does it, yeah, jump? it create a new bubble? So you're, so to avoid confusion, so the cash bubble is when people put everything in cash. When cash is temporarily perceived to be in shortage, people start rushing into cash and then all of a sudden everybody's holding cash, which creates an anti-bubble in assets. The way you, you burst it by providing more liquidity, and that's what happened in March. And we're still in the aftermath of that. We're less than a year from that bubble, burst of the bubble. And yes, well, by bursting one bubble, you kind of can inflate the opposite bubble. So by, but I don't see a, para, maybe there is a bit of a growth paradigm bubble. I don't quite sure yet of that, uh, but you could be creating, uh, you could be creating like, well, some people say that cryptocurrencies are a bubble. Some people say that, some people think gold is a bubble, right? There are different opinions there. You could be creating new bubbles, but right now it's just all about liquidity bubble. I'm not quite sure what it means. It's, it's what the bubble is in. So what was overvalued? So cash was overvalued in March, and then it got significantly devalued by extra supply of cash. And it's still being devalued. I still think the momentum is against cash. And of course, fiscal impulse might even increase the momentum. We've even noticed that mutual fund managers now have the lowest cash in all recorded history. So it's clearly coming out of cash. Um, but there's still a lot of household savings cash. There's still corporate cash. There's still a bunch of cash, as you say, still in the system that's, that's not being invested yet. Well, it looks like there is 1.9 trillion coming our way very shortly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right. I'm going to ask you another question. Um, from Dwayne Pettis, uh, either of you actually long India? Um, I'm not long yet. Are you? No. No. Just, so, circling, just circling like a vulture. Yeah, on the hoping for a sell-off to get into. Which is, which is uh, I think I just did not look at it enough yet. I'm just like it's an interview. Yeah, I only uh, said it because when you talk to me about Asian markets, where I would look first. Generally, I always put my money where my mouth is. It just means that I'm not quite ready research-wise and conceptual-wise. And also, it's a beta thing. I don't. I have a good beta balance in my portfolio, and I would have to probably replace something if I wanted to get long India. Yeah, personally, I'm just waiting for a correction. You know, I, I, I just think there's an opportunity for a correction over the next, you know, couple of months, and in which case, I'll get back in. Um, okay, let's wrap up with a final question. Do you see any other risks coming in that could cause, let's say, a correction or a sharp change of positioning? Because, you know, I've been talking about how very one-sided positioning is. And positioning, obviously, as you know, is different to a structural story. I fear that there's a lot of excess short-term, you know, one-directional risk. Do you see any risks on the horizon that could cause the markets to short, sharp, shop. It's been it's been pretty common in recent years to get these quick VAR shocks and then they recover quickly. I don't know if is there a probability of that, and if so, what could cause it? Could it be just be a spike in rates or something like that? 
I think it could be, it's very hard to figure out what would cause it, but I think there is just vulnerability. Yes, there is vulnerability of just even a shortest term bias strike for whatever structural reason, some kind of like redemption mechanics or some uh, scare, it could be scare, but it could be even just something uh, structural flow-wise that I don't understand and a tiny shift in flows could cause a pretty sharp correction right now. Yeah. Because we've seen like a tiny shift, like for some reason somebody redeems or some kind of shift in sentiment. It could be rates, it could be uh, bad news on uh, epidemic frontier, but it could be good news on epidemic frontier. It could be, oh yeah, we're vaccinated, now there'll be no more stimulus. It could be, it almost says that like, it almost feels like anything could trigger it and in either direction. Yeah. Low rates, high rates, deepening curve, letting curve, stronger dollar, weaker dollar. It's more like yeah. it's a precarious system. Because yes, I there is that kind of liquidity, but it's a wobbly train. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what I think. And I, I don't know where the risk comes from. As you said, it could be good news or bad news right now, but it feels like it's a little bit at risk of that. Alex, listen, oh, go on. No, I just want to say last thing is, I think the big mistake is to, would be to assume that market has to respond to respond to certain news in a certain fashion. And I think that's a mistake that that could derail portfolios very easily over the last year. You get news and you think that's what markets should do. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Alex, listen, as ever, really good to get your perspectives. They're always different, unique and super valuable. I found it really, really interesting. So thank you as ever, my friend. Thank you. It was great to catch up. Yeah, good to catch up. We'll talk soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.